passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. Last December, uh, there was a Newsweek article. I don't know if you saw it. It was uh, the cover article, actually, and it was titled, uh, The Bible, So Misunderstood, It's a Sin. In this article, uh, the, the, uh, the author argued that we don't really know what the Bible says. All we have today is a bad translation of a bad translation of a bad translation. It seems like he kept going on saying that. And his only solution for us was to scrap the Bible. To just get rid of it. Get rid of everything that was attached to it and just completely start over. Is this man right? Is the Bible just a, a fraud? Do we have reason to, to doubt the Bible? Maybe the Bible isn't so trustworthy after all. After all, he spent 4,000 words arguing that. Perhaps you've heard of Bart Ehrman. He's a professor of religion at the University of, Northern, of North Carolina. And he's become a bit of a, a niche celebrity for his books calling into doubt the legitimacy and the accuracy of the New Testament. Mr. Ehrman claims that there were hundreds of New Testament books in the first few centuries of the church, and it wasn't until the powerful gathered together and decided which books were going to be considered biblically worthy that we had our New Testament. Is Mr. Ehrman on to something? Is the Bible just basically made up as a way to exert power over those who are weak? Should we just admire the Bible, but maybe not hold on to it for much more than that? After all, isn't that what a reasonable person today would do? Maybe if you're on social media, you've seen pictures like this. We'll go ahead and throw this one up. Uh, this is a personal favorite of mine because it makes my blood absolutely boil. Uh, the the picture, this picture, as well as many others like this, are making a very clear statement. Anything that says that eating shellfish, eating pork, shaving, wearing po uh, cotton polyester blends, if anything prohibits that, while at the same time is condoning child abuse, slavery, misogyny, and rape, as well as more, is not all that of a good book. The focus of things like that, you can take it down, the focus of things like this are clear. We should get rid of the Bible. It's old. It's a relic of a bygone era. It's best left for museums. Of course, this isn't just an external attack on the Bible that we're seeing uh, from those who want to see Christianity disappear. There's also an internal pressure to slip in our view of the Bible. As regular Christians, we believe that the Bible is the Word of God, but if we're going to be honest, we can confess that with our mouths, but oftentimes the Bible remains on our shelves, collecting dust at home. Theoretically, we may be advocates of the Bible, but there are many of us who practically treat it in the same way as Mr. Ehrman, as the article in Newsweek, as people who shared that photo uh, do on, on Facebook. We might think of the Bible a little bit like the Queen of England, a nice figurehead, a great place to rally behind, but not all that much authority. In fact, no authority whatsoever. It might contain a good story or two. It might show us how to live a good moral life, but that's about it. 
And so we must ask ourselves the question, do we need to look at the Bible differently than we do now? Do we need to look at the Bible in a different way? Is the Bible actually trustworthy? Is there any relevance from the Bible to today? Another way of of asking this question is, what do we do when it seems like there are passages in the Bible that are outdated, that may seem hateful, that may seem misogynistic? What do we do with passages like that? That's what we're going to be exploring this morning here at Crosswinds. And in a way, it's really what we're going to be exploring next few weeks uh, here at Crosswinds. Today, as I mentioned earlier, we're beginning a four-week series. It's a short four-week series on some of the most pressing areas of debate in our culture. Now, if you're new to Crosswinds, uh, relatively new, and and your first thought is, what on earth did I just get myself into? Uh, I'm going to say something that's going to be particularly important, so so pay attention right here. Um, We are addressing these topics because the Bible addresses them. This is not a hobby horse here at Crosswinds. We don't follow a calendar where the second Sunday of the month is a controversial Sunday. That's not the way we work here. Rather, here at Crosswinds, we believe that the Bible is God's actual words to us today. And because it is actually what God has for us today, it still speaks to us today, then we have to pay attention to what it says. And the Bible influences every part of our world, the way we look at every single aspect of our world, even the parts that put us in direct conflict with our culture. This morning, we're not beginning a defense of tradition. Instead, we are trying to hold fast to God's word, trying to cling to God's word. And so it makes sense as we begin a series called, What Does the Bible Say About? That we begin by saying, well, what do we believe about the Bible? What does the Bible tell at us? Why does it even matter what the Bible says about something. What is a book that was written thousands of years ago by dozens of different authors from several different contexts and cultures? What does that have to do with us today? Over the next four weeks, it's our prayer, at least my prayer for all of us, that we will be a people who emulate Isaiah 66, the second half of verse 2. I just love this verse, and it's my prayer for us this morning. I just want to read it for us. It says this, But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. As we approach these topics, it is our desire to first be humble, to recognize that as we look at these topics, that we are prone to be led astray by our sinful desires just as much as anyone else can. It is our desire to remain humble, to admit that we can be wrong in our interpretation of Scripture. But also at the same time, we want to tremble at God's Word. We want to approach it with reverence. We want to recognize that it is a very Word that is spoken to us and for us today. And from that place, that we can confidently see God's Word as a place of guidance, as a place of direction, and to do so humbly. So that's my prayer for us as we begin this journey together uh, and as we explore this morning what the Bible has to say about the Bible. I really want to just look at at one verse that is from John chapter 17, verse 17. If you have a Bible, I invite you to open up to John 17, 17 to give a little context to you. This is a prayer 
that Jesus is praying for his disciples as well as by extension for all believers, for his church, right before he is arrested, right before he is crucified. And what he is praying is that his church would be strengthened in the power of the Holy Spirit as they are faced with increasing opposition. And I just think that that's so important for us this morning as well, as we find ourselves in a place where we are beginning to experience not a ton of opposition to the gospel, but a little bit more than in past decades, that Jesus's prayer is extremely relevant for us today as well, that we would be strengthened through the power of the Holy Spirit. So hear these words from John chapter 17, verse 17. One simple phrase, it says, the uh, sentence, it says this. Sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. Sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. What a powerful, profound description that Jesus gives us of the Bible itself and what it means for us today. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to explore these two halves of this passage. John 17, 17. First, we're actually going to, we're going to look at them in reverse order. So first, we're going to look at Jesus' statement that your word is truth. We're going to say, well, what exactly does that mean? What does it mean that God's word is truth? And then second, we're going to look at Jesus' prayer that this truth, God's word, would be sanctifying for us, that we would sanctify us. And so that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. And as we do that, I just ask that we would pray one more time as we approach these Topic. So please join me in prayer one more time. God, we thank you that, as Jesus says here, that your word is truth. As we explore this, as we seek to discover what you mean by the fact that your word is truth, we ask that we would do so humbly, and we would approach your word with reverence, trembling before you, our great, holy, wonderful King. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, first, we're going to look at this phrase, your word is truth. And to do that, we're going to look at four categories that are often used as we talk about the Bible. These are four theological categories uh, that you may have heard of before. They're going to help us understand this phrase, your word is truth. First one is this, revelation. Revelation. Another way of looking at this concept is uh, we see Jesus say that God's word is truth. What truth does God's word contain for us? There are lots of books out there that contain truth. Books on math contain truth about math. Books on history oftentimes contain truth on history. Even science books contain truth on areas of science. But what does the Bible have to say that, is tr- uh, that, it, that it shows it, it is telling the truth about? What truth does the Bible reveal to us? Another way of, of asking this is, what truth do we have now with the Bible that we wouldn't have without it? I think there are two things. First, it tells us who God is. The Bible tells us who God is. Without the Bible, we wouldn't know who God is. Now, we can look at creation and we can assume and we can logically conclude that there is a creator, that there is a God out there. We can look at other sources such as morality and conclude that there is a God out there. But these sources don't tell us a lot about what he is like. We can't look at creation and conclude that God is one who actually cares about his creation or whether he has forgotten about his creation. We can't look at other sources and say, 
that God is a loving God or whether God is a hateful God. That's where the Bible itself comes in. It gives us the only faithful picture of who God is that we have. The beginning of Hebrews chapter 1 explains this when the, the author of Hebrews writes this. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is much more excellent than theirs. Notice what the author is saying here. He's saying that God has spoken in past days, thousands of years ago, he spoke to us through the prophets in the Old Testament. This is the way that God revealed who he was. But in these last days, in the days of the New Testament, God has spoken to us through his son. The implication of this is that if God hadn't spoken to us, if God hadn't sent Jesus to speak to us, to reveal fully his plan, then we wouldn't have understood who God was. We needed God to speak to us for us to truly understand who he is and what he is like. Jesus gives us the clearest revelation of God. Any other source we find is inadequate. There's another interesting thing about, uh, about Hebrews chapter 1. Not only does it tell us that any other source is inadequate, but it also tells us that no other source is needed. We don't need another source to tell us about who God is and what God is like. We don't need to add books to the Bible because the Bible is God's clearest revelation to tell us who he is. It alone reveals who he is. So that's one thing that the Bible reveals. The Bible reveals a a number of other things. I just want to focus on one more, and that is how we should live. The Bible reveals to us how we should live. It tells us, how we are supposed to relate to God, not just as Christians, but as humanity in general. The Old Testament prophet Micah says this, He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Notice how he starts that verse. He starts it by saying, He has shown you, He has told you what is good. God reveals to us in His Word, his desires for us as humanity, and how we are supposed to live. The commands he gives us in Scripture are not arbitrary lists that God just created in order to make things a little more interesting, a little more difficult for us. They are given to us because that's the way that God desires, actually cares about the way that we live. And if there are parts of that that you don't like, and you can be honest and say, yeah, I I don't really care for the Bible telling me that I need to, to do that, that's okay. You have two options. You can accept it anyway, or you can decide, well, next time I create a universe and I get to create all the laws, then I can make up my own rules. It's God's world. It's God's universe. He's the one who gets to decide how things are run. The Bible reveals to us how we are to live, and it reveals to us who God is. Again, it it reveals many other things to us, but I think these are the most relevant for us today. So first, revelation. We just talked about that. That's the truth that the Bible contains. But we might be wondering, well, how do we know that the Bible is telling the truth? How can we trust what the Bible has to say? And that's because of its origin. 
This is another term that we're going to look at. That's inspiration. The Bible is inspired. The best way to understand inspiration is to look at a passage of Scripture that tells us about inspiration. That's 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 19 through 21. It says this, And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention, knowing that, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That is a profound passage that tells us about the origins of Scripture. And I think there are two things that Peter wants us to know from this. First, the words of God were recorded by humans. Look at the last part of this, uh, of this passage. It says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. When we talk about the origins of the Bible... When we confess that the Bible is the word of God, we don't believe that the Bible just somehow miraculously floated down from heaven and was given to us. And we went over to a Xerox machine and just made tons of copies for us. That's not what we believe. We don't believe that we just found the Bible laying out there and we decided to make copies of it. We believe that the Bible was written down, recorded by humans. But some of us might begin to think, well, well, how, how did that work? How, how was it that the Bible was recorded by humans? And, and some of us might think that the Bible was given to us via di- dictation. In other words, we might think that when Paul wrote the book of Ephesians, God said, okay, Paul, I got a new book for you to write. So why don't you follow me to this, this cave and, and we're going to go ahead and we're going to write down this book that I want you to write down. So let me know when you're ready. Are you ready, Paul? And so Paul says, yeah, all right, I'm ready says, okay, write down every single word that I say. Ready? Here we go. Paul. So Paul writes down Paul. Anne. Paul writes down Anne. Paul is probably left-handed because I am. Uh, Apostle. Paul writes down apostle. Of. Paul writes down of. Christ, Christ, Jesus, Jesus, by, by, the, the, will, will, of, of, God, God. Okay, Paul, that's the first phrase. How how you doing? You, You feeling good about this? That's not what happened when the books of the Bible were written down. That's where the second thing of of this inspiration comes into play. People were guided and led by the Holy Spirit. That's one of the most beautiful things about the, the Bible. There are dozens of different authors with dozens of different styles, and yet there is a remarkable unity found in Scripture. God spoke through humans, and he spoke through the the situations that they found themselves in, the context that they were in. The uh, Really, their personalities are found in Scripture as they are pro- proclaiming God's word to his people. If you look at Scripture, you're going to see that Peter writes in a very different way than Paul does. That John writes in a very different way than Mark does. The Old Testament writers write in a very different way than New Testament writers do. And yet all of them were guided and led by the Holy Spirit. Essentially, when we say that the Bible is the inspired word of God, what we mean is that although humans wrote it down, it has its ultimate origins. Its true source is in God alone. God, the Holy Spirit, directs the writing of his word. And we call this verbal plenary inspiration. That's a really fancy term. And we're just going to look at that word by word. So first, verbal. When we say verbal, we mean that every single word of the Bible is supposed to be there. 
Every word that we find in Scripture comes from God. He meant for them to be there. Not just the concepts that are behind these words, but the very words themselves. Second, plenary. Every single part of the Bible is inspired. It's not like God, uh, well, he, he forgot about the book of James, and so that really isn't all that inspired. No, every single part of the Bible is inspired. God doesn't make mistakes. God doesn't mumble. Every single thing that we have in Scripture is inspired. And then inspiration, again, means that it comes from God himself. And there, there are many people today who will say they believe in inspiration, but they will reject those first two terms. They'll just say, well, you know, God, God inspired his word, but not all of it is inspired. They'll reject the verbal part and the, the plenary part. There's a problem with that, though. It's a dangerous precedent to set. Can you think of why? If we say that not every part of God's word is inspired, then none of it is, no long, is, is inspired anymore. No part of God's word is inspired if not all of it is inspired because we becomes the ones who are inspired. We are the ones who get to decide what God really meant and what God didn't mean. We are the ones who get to pick and choose through our lens of culture or through our lens of our own personal attitudes towards Scripture. We become the ones who get to decide what God actually meant. And Scripture no longer becomes inspired, but we are the ones who become inspired if we reject the belief that all of Scripture is inspired. This is a a radically important thing for us to recognize this morning. We're going to talk about this a little bit more, but this is where a ton of debates happen today in the church because people reject the full inspiration of scripture friends we believe that all of the bible is truth all of the bible has been given to us to reveal who god is how god chooses for us to live and we know this because of its origin but you might be still wondering well how do we know that the bible is trusted it's because the bible is without error This is another term, the third one, inerrancy. We find this belief in in Scripture that the Bible is inerrant. This flies in the face of many modern-day armchair critics who claim that the Bible is filled with contradictions. The interesting thing is, if you ask them to give you an example of a contradiction, most of them say, oh, I don't don't really know. And so they'll have to go to Google and and find an alleged contradiction. But all of these contradictions deny the purpose of what the Bible is trying to say, or the context of what the Bible is trying to say. The same thing can be said by those who claim that the Bible is just flat out wrong in places. I think the the most laughable one is people say, because the Bible says that the sun rises, that the Bible is therefore wrong. They say, well, back then the Bible was teaching a, 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 an earth centric, a terra-centric view of the solar system rather than a heliocentric, and so therefore the Bible is wrong, and yet they every morning will say, what time is sunrise? What time is sunset? It's a, it's a nonsensical way of arguing about the, the legitimacy of the Bible. Another one is Jesus, if you remember the parable of the mustard seed. Jesus says, the mustard seed is the smallest of all seeds. And people will say, well, that's wrong, because it's, it's not the smallest of all seeds. I think the Bible is giving us a botany lesson rather than Jesus making a point about the kingdom of God, something that starts small, something that starts in an insignificant manner and yet grows into a massive tree, a place where his kingdom infiltrates all of the world. 
Friends, we have good reason to trust the Bible. Your Bibles can be trusted. The Newsweek article that claims that the Bibles are, that we have are translations of translations of translations is just a flat-out lie. The Bibles that we have are trustworthy. We can trust what they say. We actually have more reason to trust the Bible than any other historical book in history. There are over 6,000 manuscripts of the New Testament alone. Another crucial event in world history is Caesar's crossing of the Rubicon. This uh, monumental event in, in Roman history as well as in, Roman, uh, in world history, there are only 10 copies of that story. There are 600 times more copies of the New Testament in the original languages than we have of Caesar's historical event. We believe that Caesar actually crossed the Rubicon, and yet we, we doubt what Scripture has to say. No, friends, we have much reason. We have many reasons. We have every reason to believe that the Bible is inerrant, that the Bible we have is faithful to what God intends for us today. So God's Word is revealing who He is, it is inspired by God, and it is inerrant. And if all those things are true, then we come to one final term, and that is authority. God's word has authority over us. Scripture is God's revelation of his will. And because of that, it holds ultimate authority over our lives. It holds the greatest authority over our lives, just as God does. God invests it with his own authority for us, telling us how we are to live. You might be saying, well, well, where does that come from in the Bible? Or how do you believe in the Bible being the ultimate authority of your life? First, the Bible makes this claim. And some people will say, well, that's circular reasoning. After all, if someone came up to me and said, yeah, I'm the ultimate authority over you because I say so, you'd be like, yeah, right, that's, that's not happening. So, so how can we say that the Bible says that it's the ultimate authority, therefore the Bible is the ultimate authority? I'm willing to admit that that's circular reasoning, uh, but let's be honest, every form of ultimate authority has to do with some sort of circular reasoning. One scholar, he puts it this way. It should be admitted that this is a kind of circular argument. However, that does not make its use invalid, for all arguments for an absolute authority must ultimately appeal to that authority for proof. Otherwise, that authority would not be absolute or highest in its authority. This problem is not unique to the Christian who is arguing for the authority of the Bible. Everyone either implicitly or explicitly uses some sort of circular argu argument when defending his or her ultimate authority for belief. You will encounter people who will say, well, reason is my ultimate authority because I think it is reasonable to believe so. Others will say, well, I find science to be my ultimate authority because the scientific method led me to believe so. The way I feel about the world is my ultimate authority because it feels like it should be that way. Every one of us is guilty of circular reasoning when it comes to ultimate authorities in our life. So let's at least just be honest. It's not just Christians when they claim that scripture is our highest authority that are guilty of this. Billy Graham, a great evangelist of the 20th century, and tells this story of how he found himself at a crossroads early in his ministry that dealt with the authority of Scripture. He had always believed in the authority of Scripture, and yet he began to be chided uh, for his antiquated view 
of the Bible. And so he, he shares this. I'm just going to read his, uh, his memoir. He says this, Could I trust the Bible? With the Los Angeles campaign galloping toward me, I had to have an answer. If I couldn't trust the Bible, I could not go on. I would have to quit the school presidency. I would have to leave pulpit evangelism. At least I was only 30 years of age. It was not too late to become a dairy farmer. But that night, I believed with all my heart that the God who saved me, who had saved my soul, would never let go of me. He says, I prayed, oh God, there are many things in this book I do not understand. There are many problems with it for which I have no solution. There are many seeming contradictions. There are some areas in it that do not seem to correlate with modern science. I can't answer some of the philosophical and psychological arguments others are raising. Father, I am going to accept this as thy word by faith. I'm going to allow faith to go beyond intellectual questions and doubts, and I will believe this to be your inspired word. I love Billy Graham's raw honesty here. But even more than that, I love how he recognizes this is an all-or-nothing proposition. This is an all-or-nothing proposition. We can't half-heartedly, lackadaisically trust in God's Word. If God's Word is not trustworthy, then we should just get rid of it. We should just be done with it. And yet if God's word is trustworthy, if it is actually the word of God, then it, can be not, then it cannot be anything less than our ultimate authority. It demands much more from us than partial commitment. It is our highest authority over all that we say, over all that we do, over all that we believe, over all that we desire in our lives. We cannot go halfway in our view of the Bible. Now, I'm not saying that there is no room for doubt. After all, that's what Billy Graham's prayer is about. But we must cling to God in his word. And even in the midst of our doubts, we must fully submit to God in his words. Friends, the Bible is trustworthy. It tells us who God is. It tells us what we are meant to be. It tells us that its origins are with God. And because of that, it has the highest authority in our lives. That's what the first half of John seventeen seventeen is trying to tell us. So let's transition to this phrase, sanctify them in the truth. So what does Jesus mean when he prays this, to sanctify them in the truth? Well, first of all, we have to understand what sanctify means. Sanctify is a verb that simply means to make holy, to make someone set apart, to make something like God. And so what Jesus is saying is that he is praying that God would make his people more like him through Scripture. God's word makes us holy in many ways. Just a, just a few of them. First, the truth gives us life. The truth gives us life. Everyone who hears the word of God has the opportunity to be given life through the word of God. Ezekiel 37 paints a beautiful picture of what this looks like. It's a, it's a picture of those who are dead being raised to life through the very words of God. If you're a Christian, the same thing has happened to you. You've very literally been raised from spiritual death into new life in Christ because of the hearing of God's word, through the proclamation of God's word. Scripture gives us new life. But it doesn't just give us a new life once. It's a continual source of life for us. It is a cool drink of water for our parched 
weary souls. It is a healing balm for our burnt out lives. See, the Bible is not just a list of moral rules. It's not just a list of good principles and some good advice for us to live. If it was, then it truly wouldn't have any sanctifying power. No, God's word tells us the story of who he is, what he has done for us. It tells us the story of our wicked rebellion against God and the great lengths that he went to to bring us back to him. Friends, God's word brings us new life. Second thing that God's worth does to sanctify us, the truth encourages us. The truth encourages us. Paul closes 1 Thessalonians 4 with these words. He says, Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. At the end of this chapter, as he gets done telling people about the about the second coming of Christ. He says, you know what I want you to do now? I want you to take these words and I want, to use the, I want you to use them to encourage each other. When you are feeling down, encourage one another. When you are feeling lonely, when you are feeling left by yourself, where there's nowhere else to turn, look to scripture for your source of encouragement. God has given us these words for encouragement. Third thing, We see that truth teaches us. The truth of Scripture teaches us. Very popular passage that is used when we talk about Scripture is 2 Timothy 3.16. It says this, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. This goes hand in hand with our understanding of revelation. God reveals himself to us through his word. And as we see who he is in his word, We are taught. We become more like him. This isn't just a a head knowledge that we're talking about, but this is a transformation that we see. It leads to a greater worship with all of our lives. It leads us to be more like him, to live differently in all that we do, as God's word teaches us. And finally, I think this is the most important for us today. God's truth confronts us. The truth confronts us. I'm just going to be honest. There are times where we read the Bible and there's something that we don't like in it. There's something that tells us that we aren't living rightly, that we should shape our lives in a different way. And when we are confronted by the words of Scripture, we are given the opportunity to be sanctified, to be made more like Jesus, or we are given the opportunity to turn our back on him, to reject what his word says. In the Bible, one of the biggest metaphors used for holiness is that of fire. In the same way that fire purifies precious metal of all of its imperfections, so also holy fire purifies us, cleanses us of all of our imperfections. Friends, the word of God can hurt. I'm just going to be completely honest. Until we get to the kingdom of God, until it's fully realized, it probably should hurt from time to time as we are confronted with our own sinfulness. I think this is the biggest blind spot of the church in America today. We see scripture and the Bible and Christianity as a way for us to live comfortable, easy lives. We see it as a means to the end of the American dream. And when there comes to be something in the Bible that we don't like, we'll either just throw it out and say, well, that can't be right. Or we'll try to reason it away. 
and say, well, this is what it really means to follow God. But the reality is God's word is truth. God's word sanctifies us. I love the way one person puts it. He says, if there's something that I don't like in the Bible, the problem is not with the Bible. The problem is with me. Friends, we are all sinful. And when the Bible confronts us in those areas, it can be hard to hear. It can be hard to listen to. But we must ask ourselves, what are we going to do with it? Are we going to submit ourselves to our God and King? Or are we going to reject the very words of the Bible? And that's really what this series this morning is about. In a, in a way, uh, that's what this morning is about. In a way, what our series over the next few weeks is about. The Word of God has the power of God to shape the people of God into the image of God. We have to ask ourselves, what are we going to do with it? What are we going to do with it even when it hurts? Because a lot of times, just being honest, shaping does hurt. Being shaped into the image of God does hurt. And yet it is infinitely worth it. I want to be crystal clear about why we covered this this morning as we close. Everything that we talk about over the next few weeks is going to be pretty dicey. We're going to look at homosexuality. We're going to look at at transgenderism. We're going to look at at some very sensitive topics. We spent all of today looking at God's word, focusing on the authority of God's word, because ultimately these hot-button issues are not issues about what the Bible says. That's very clear what the Bible says. These are ultimately issues about what do we believe about the Bible. How will we interpret the Bible? How will we hold on to the Bible? Will we reject the parts of Scripture that we don't like? Or even though we don't like them, will we submit ourselves to the Word of God? A faithful understanding of God's Word is crucial for us as we find ourselves in a place of culture showing us increasing hostility. The Word of God contains the power of God to shape the people of God into the image of God. In his book, Onward, Russell Moore shares this story of a conversation that he had with a lesbian atheist who was actually asking him about the Christian sexual ethic. And and as he was telling her about what Christians believe, uh, he began to realize that he was the first person who had ever told her that uh, sex was only meant to be practiced in marriage and that marriage was only meant to be between one man and between one wife. She was shocked She was very cordial about it, not in a rude way. She just couldn't believe what she was hearing. She said, I've never heard about that before. I've never heard it described in that way before. And she closes uh, by sharing her context and and what she believes and what other people believe. And she closes with this phrase, and it's very, very interesting what she says. She says this, do you see how strange what you just said sounds to us out here in normal America? Do you see how strange it sounds to us out here in normal America? That's, that's really shocking. She talks about normal America. Friends, we are anything but normal. We do not find ourselves in a place where we are the status quo. Our commitment to God through his word makes us anything but normal in the world's eyes. And that should be good news to us. 
Because as we commit ourselves to God's word, we are shaped into his image, even when, it's hurt, when it hurts. The word of God contains the power of God to shape the people of God into the image of God. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what it teaches us. And we even thank you for the times where it confronts us, that it challenges us, the times where it may hurt. God, we pray that you would help us to submit ourselves to your word, to do so humbly, to do so reverently, as we desire to be more like you and to honor you in all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.